The Devils of Ludon, oh, the uh, Aljuas Huxley book. Gotcha. It's great. It, uh, huge sections of it are just straight esoteric theology. <laughs> How many orgies with like demon crazed nuns are there and that sort of thing? So it's interesting. So that was a lot of the cruelty that was visited on Grandier and a lot of the cruelty that was visited on the nuns was accurate. But the sexuality stuff was definitely turned up a notch by uh, the seventies. Why not? Yeah, go down. All right. Well, y'all have uh, y'all have intruded upon us in the middle of an interesting conversation about horror. But this is Wrong Real episode four hundred and eighty-two, I believe. Yes, forty-two. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, in the flesh, we've got the host of Film Baby Film, John Lobinger, who's now a New Yorker. Used to be a Bostonian. Now he's a New Yorker, and sounds like you're. New Yorker, you're going to be a New Yorker for a good long while. You, you were at the New York Film Festival, you seem to like Manhattan, but welcome to Wrong Real. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I've graduated. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I mean, here absolutely. in the big city. Well, I, I do a lot of Skype sessions, it's a ton of fun, but face to face, eyeball to eyeball is always the preferred way. I feel like we just it creates a much more interesting chemistry. But if people have not heard our giant deep dive into the films of Don, was it Don Visconti? How's it, what's the full name? Don Lucchino Visconti de Madrone. That, that's it. If people have not heard that, who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? Etc. Yeah, so I'm John Lobager. I'm the host of Film Baby Film. And I'm a part of the 25th Frame Media Group. And you've had plenty of the people like Aaron West is is a member and uh, plenty of other people on your podcast before. So, yeah, it's quite an honor to be up here in uh, uh, the headquarters of Wrong Reel. Who's that insane Australian redhead hottie who's amazing, who's also part of that crew? Oh, yeah. She used to work for Criterion. Or, you know, she worked, did she work for their streaming service? I can't remember. She's TCM. Oh, she's a TCM? Yeah, now. Alicia gotcha. Malone. Al- yeah. No, Alicia Malone came from TCM, and she was active with Filmstruck and all of that. But her main thing is like, yeah, on air, producing content and introductions to movies. And she created a podcast, and that's a part of the 25th Frame Media. I think it's is pretty it safe to say that she is the hottest film commentator in the biz. I mean, I can only, film lovers and film goers tend to be 
what's the word that I'm looking for? They're natural introverts and don't spend a lot of time socializing, but I imagine there are a lot of crushes out there, a lot of like, you know, palpitating harsh rates anytime she's offer, offering commentary on, I know, I remember I saw a video of hers by on Jean-Pierre Melville that was yep. fantastic. And she just absolutely did this great deep dive into his entire filmography. I was like, huh, all right, I'm going to pay attention to her from now on. Yeah, she's awesome. She did an episode uh, on Climax, on Gaspar Noah's Climax, and she was interviewing the choreographer. And she, it was, it was, and I love that movie, and I'm, I, I think you like that movie yeah, as well. Yeah, I posted a video about it back in March, I believe. Yeah, and she, she was interviewing her, and it was just, it was awesome. At one point, she, she has this amazing question. It was like a class in how you do interviews. She said, "What, what beautiful things has dance brought into your life?" And I didn't even wait to hear the answer. I sort of just stopped it and was like, "Holy, holy shit!" Well, it was almost like one of the questions <laughs> from the film, like when they're when they're doing the auditions in yeah. the. Yeah. Like, what does dance mean to you? And they're like, oh, like everything and so on and so forth. But I, I love the uh, the interviews in that movie. Also, when you look at the behind the shelf, you see basically or behind the subjects, all of Gaspar Noé's favorite DVDs like yeah. Possession and that sort of thing lining the lining the wall. Which, by the way, I don't know if they shared like art producers, but us, the beginning of us also had that with Jordan Peele where he set up uh, where the kid is watching Hands Across America gotcha. and all on the outside is all the VHS cassettes that are clearly the influences for gotcha. that movie and they were they came out at such, such close time I was like how did they both get that exact same setup um, but yeah no I know exactly what you're talking about it's it's a it's a fun movie. Absolutely. Well, anything going on at Film Baby Film right now that you want to plug or promote or anything like that? Yeah. So the last couple of episodes. Um, so as I've mentioned, as I've mentioned, uh, this is a little bit of fan service. But yeah, as I've mentioned before, like Wrong Reel totally inspired me to get into podcasting. And so a couple of our previous uh, guests are will be you know totally familiar to anybody that listens to Wrong Reel. We had Martin Kessler on Very to talk nice. about uh, Alexi German's new movie, Cristalli Off My Car. Is he the world's foremost expert on Alexi German? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a very good chance. He's at least the big, most vocal fan that I'm aware of. If you look on YouTube podcasts, just search for Alexi German. He is in every episode. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Except for like one episode that's in the German language. Let's go back. That's fun because it's hard as a film lover to find unexplored terrain that where you can kind of make an identity for yourself and put your stamp on it because if you want to talk about Sergio Leone guess what a lot of people have talked about Sergio Leone so it's gonna be hard to say something fresh and new but Kessler has found his domain Alexi German <laughs> <laughs> no exactly exactly so have an episode with him and then Marcus Penn came on Marcus had done uh, I think it was a Velvet Buzzsaw article that he really wanted to podcast about and I really love uh, uh, Nightcrawler. And so we, we did like the double header of uh, Gilroy and Gyllenhaal. And so had did those two movies together. So those are my last two episodes. And then I got a couple of couple of stuff, uh, a, a couple of episodes that I'm cooking up right now that I'm excited about. I think the one I told you about is the Ingmar Bergman episode where I, I talked to uh, like a 95-year-old film professor. Like old school. Um, you know, I think his first film class was in 1960. Wow. So he came on to talk about Bergman, and it gets it gets pretty heady. It's some pretty good stuff. Yeah, very nice. What Bergman fans tend to be heady, so they probably <laughs> respond. Well, what was your favorite flick that you saw at the New York Film Festival? Uh, so Parasite was my favorite new movie that came out, but 
and this is a bit of a controversial statement because the like a lot of people don't like this movie, and I loved it. A Cotton Club, or? Cotton Club. Yeah, yeah. Well, is it a new cut or is it just restored? Yeah, no, it's the new. It's a new cut, and it's very much extended. A lot of the performances are now basically unedited and shown, you know, fully. Um, and I think also, I think what Coppola said was it was. The performances are extended and uncut, and then the other thing is, is that there were. Um, so the movie for people who haven't seen it, there's like, there's like mafia situation going on, but then there's also like Harlem gangsters, and he said that he added back a lot more of the Harlem gangster storylines that was cut. Um, and the film was a huge flop in its day, correct? Huge flop. It was gonna be like The Godfather <laughs> with music, but yeah. nobody went and a huge flop. And I just found it to be really fun. It was a surprising movie. Like there's a couple of moments of sheer horror in the film that I was not expecting. Yeah, I haven't seen it probably like in 15, 16 years. I just remember some exquisite footage of Diane Lane, like in diaphanous yeah. gowns and shadows, like whoa. And it's uh, Richard Gere and Gregory Hines, or those the, the two exactly. co-leads? Exactly, and I just seen my first Fred Astaire film, so I was totally primed. For, for some tap like, dancing? Yeah. For some, <laughs> for some clicking and some picking? That's exactly what it was. How did it take you this long to watch Fred Astaire? It's, uh, you know, if we could we could do an entire episode about the movies that Give I haven't watched. Give us the short version, because that, that, that's interesting. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't like musicals, however... I'm always happy to throw down with the bandwagon or swing time or any right. great Fred Astaire movie because I enjoy the athleticism of the tap dancing because it's not just people breaking into song and talking about their feelings like that really leaves me cold. But if you can show me like the Nicholas Brothers and Stormy Weather throwing down, I'm like, fuck yeah, like it's on. Let's, let's do it. it. Reminds me of like Buster Keaton or Jackie Chan. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially I was raised by wolves. And so it wasn't like, <laughs> like it wasn't... Paul, Paul Schrader. Yeah, he didn't see a movie until he was like 19. No. And that's actually, that's very much not the case for me. I had, uh, basically my family was relatively poor. I mean, not relatively, they were poor, but for whatever reason, like, like can afford the R. <laughs> no, I mean, we Is did, it, we, no Chris Rock bit. <laughs> we would not have food, but we always always had HBO. Nice. All right. I and like the so, priorities. <laughs> so, like, my mother's first husband would just be. He apparently got. <laughs> he got my my sister told me this story. I didn't know this, but apparently he got fired from a job because he was driving a beer truck, and my mother came home one day and the closet was filled with beer. Nice. <laughs> so even like somebody like that. He would just sit there and just watch John Carpenter movies, RoboCop. Like there were always films at the house, but it was not, it was not like musicals. It was not tap dance. Like I never got exposed to that stuff until relatively recently, like intentionally trying to uh, explore more film. Gotcha. All yeah. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fred Astaire. I just feel like like he's one of those guys like Cary Grant, where just, they know how to walk into a room backwards more gracefully than most people can do it forward. It's just, he's just the essence of style and grace and sophistication. And yeah, I am a Fred Astaire fan. Yeah, and I saw Top Hat, so it's also him paired with Ginger Rogers and just charm for days. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Okay. Give me a smile. Gino, are you sure we're going the right way? I've never been lost in my life. <laughs> There's only one way out of this chamber, and that's down the pipe. I'm stuck! I can't breathe! Okay, Sarah, you have to calm down. I'm coming, I'm coming back! Okay? Okay. Okay, move! Now! Now! 
talking about horror today not Fred Astaire <laughs> not New York or anything like that and we're gonna be talking about a movie that I think is easily one of the top genre films of the 21st century and that is Neil Marshall's film The Descent I've seen it four or five times now and it still is a fucking nail biter every time mm. I watch it I love everything about it and the way, what I always I always describe it as like the female version of Predator not in terms of what the movie's like but how it works really really well as an action movie, an adventure movie, and a thriller for like 45 minutes to an hour before the monsters even really make their presence known. And usually you're just waiting for the bad guys to show up. This movie would have been just fine without something underground coming to get them. But the fact that you have this additional sauce at the end makes it all, all the more satisfying. And it's funny how Neil Marshall has never been able to match it, sadly, ever since. He does Game of Thrones shows. He, yeah. does, he does a lot of movies. But The Descent still is, for me, the high watermark of his career. Yeah, it's pretty clear that um, the Game of Thrones episodes that he've done, he's done have been the only things that have compared to, uh, to The Descent. I think, I, think, I think even if you were in the room, he would agree with that. Yeah, but anytime they want to do a big battle scene, but they want to get champagne for the price of beer, they would bring them in and say, well, you need $100 million, but we're going to give you 10 <laughs> What can you do? Especially in the early seasons where yeah. they were really restricted and hamstrung by some smaller scale. By the end, they're like, we're just going to throw money at every problem except for writing and so on and so forth. And like, you know, they kind of dropped the ball at the end, but Neil Marshall was a huge part of all the best battle scenes throughout that entire show. He was also the director of the recent flop of the R-rated Hellboy, a movie I had really high hopes for, and I... I was kind of banging the drum for it just because I want to see more R-rated supernatural superhero movies, but the movie's a fucking mess, and I think there's a lot of chaos going on behind the scenes that mm. wasn't entirely his fault, but in the end, the director gets blamed. If it's a hit or a, or a failure, the director gets blamed either way. So did you get to see The Descent in the movies when it came out, or did, did you see it? I'm, I'm, I'm always kicking myself over, the, over this. I was at Sundance when it debuted. No way! And I remember that, what's this? I remember seeing in the program, it's the image of Sarah coming out of the ground, which yes. is my favorite moment of the movie. And I was like, interesting. And then for whatever reason, I didn't go. And then like a year later, my sister and my little brother and I were high as balls. And <laughs> we threw this thing in. And we started watching it. I was like, I hear it's pretty good. And when the big reveal happens, like two-thirds of the way through the movie, it was the loudest shriek of horror I've ever had with any group of people ever watching the movie. My little brother's leg was like thrashing like Jabba the Hutt's tongue when he's being choked. And like my sister was squealing. And I was like, quiet! Because I didn't want my parents to come, come down and like find us all high and paranoid and everything. But man, we were just 
totally floored. So maybe it's a good thing that I didn't see it at Sundance because I got to have that great experience with my brother and my sister. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, no. So I wonder if it's Sundance because I know that obviously, and we'll talk about this later, but I know the U.S. and the U.K. releases got different endings. Yeah. But I wonder. I, I, I wonder I, I, what I, I Sundance I don't like the American saw. ending. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming they saw the British ending initially. Yeah. Yeah. Like for people who don't know, if you see a version of the movie where at the end she basically encounters a ghost of Juno, which doesn't even make any fucking sense, <laughs> but that's the un. What drives me crazy is that if you go on Amazon, you oh, of course I'm going to watch the unrated version of The Descent, which has the American ending. No but, way. Yeah, which is really frustrating. And if you watch the theatrical cut, it is the British version where we see that she's basically been having a dream while lying on the floor of the cave. And I don't find that ending particular. It, people said it's too bleak and it's too dark. I don't think it is. In, in a weird, because you don't see her die. It's just like, is she psycho? Like, was this all in her head? Did she kill her friends? Are the bat creatures real? Like, it's a much more ambiguous classic horror ending. Yeah. And I just I think the uh, the, the British ending is vastly superior. That's very interesting. I think up until recently, I sort of enjoyed the American ending, not because I felt like it was a happy ending, because I didn't. I assumed that uh, the way that the American ending uh, works, that she had completely lost her shit. I just love, I love that, like, being born from the womb, like, that whole exit uh, so much. It's glorious. Oh, yeah. And then when she does the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, you know, just run of fright to the truck. It just the whole thing I just think is wonderful. Um, and the music swells oh, and just gosh. soars and it's so beautiful. It's one of the most powerful moments in horror in the 21st century without a doubt. But now that now that I've seen it, you know, an, an additional four times, now that I've seen it, I don't know, 8, 10 times, I think that I am more on board with the totally nihilistic version. I think the movie and the ending, no matter which one you look at, is just it's dark, it's bleak, it's as nihilistic as you can get. And Neil Marshall was open to both of them because he was a little bit ambivalent about which one he preferred as well. So it's yeah. not like one of the situations where it was foisted upon him. Right. He was trying to figure it out himself, and so the jury's out on what's the official ending. Yeah. So, no, I... It, it's So, th the first time that I saw this movie, it was... It was a few years after it had come out, and I think it would have been around 2008. So this movie came out at the time where I was still on MySpace, not Facebook. Nice. And MySpace would always have advertisements for The Descent. And the advertisements look so gross because it's the uh, the baptism of blood scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm never going to watch that movie. That doesn't yeah, look a girl scary. It looks disgusting. Forth from a pool of just blood vomit. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, I saw Carrie once. I don't know if I need to see it again. So I avoided seeing it. And my friend, uh, we, were, we were at a uh, house late one night, and it was a similar setup. I think we were more beer than 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 weed. And we were crushing sitting there. Beers. We were just crushing beers in Boston. You know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like let's put in the descent and immediately i was hooked yeah immediately it grabs you in seconds and they do that on purpose i yeah. mean neil marshall at this time he had already done dog soldiers so he and he had had a couple of years to sort of percolate this script idea and this movie idea and so he knew exactly what he wanted to do and he did it like he hooks you right away the advertising is so focused on the cave that when you come into the movie and you see whitewater rafting, you see wildlife, you feel like you're safe. And then he just lets you know whatever your expectations like, are no, coming into this movie. Pull through the forehead of a toddler. Like, sorry, you're not safe at all. Because I, I remember when that scene happened, because it's like five minutes into the movie, and my sister was like, 
is this gonna be one of those movies where things keep jumping out of me and i was like i don't know maybe i was like i haven't seen it but she but she rolled with it and she was a trooper and she hung in there oh yeah no question neil marshall and the people behind the descent had no problem with jump scares cheap earned whatever they're just they are just down for jump well, scares good jump scares oh, yeah. where it's what i hate are the jump scares that are the false alarms where it's like Wah! and then it's like oh, and then you kind of get to exhale because they don't they have no impact upon second or third viewings. But now, every time I watch the movie, when I see the husband kind of drifting into the other lane and he's distracted, and you can tell, like, oh my God, there's like there's some tension going on between the the husband and the wife. You can see it coming in slow motion. I, th- I think the scene plays very well upon multiple viewings. Yeah, and you know it's you know it's even better for that sort of jump scare early on is the jump scare where she where Sarah's in the cabin and she doesn't know that she's dreaming. Yeah, and the spike goes through her head. I've seen this movie recently um, three times, so I've watched it over and over again, and. I still jump at that because the way that they timed it, you can't really be prepared for when it happens. And it's so shocking. It just works no matter what. Well, we kind of got ahead of ourselves. For people out there who have not seen this movie, who have now officially had <laughs> to spoil this fuck to what is the premise of The Descent? So the premise is Six Chicks with Picks. Which is going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> No, it, it it's uh yeah, it's uh six women get together uh on the anniversary of a tragedy that sort of impacted most of the people on this trip and uh they're old friends and they've uh had this shared experience of going on these adventures uh really since college. And so they uh decide to they're all they're all British and so they decide to travel to the United States and do some spelunking. And that's when things go wrong, and yes. things go very wrong. Yeah, for the first couple of times I saw it, I thought they did actually travel to the Appalachian Mountains, and I, I grew up near the Appalachian Mountains. But it's all shot in the UK, and so and everything in the caves is on a soundstage, so there's yeah. very, there's very little actual location footage. But man, never in a million years would I watch this and say, "Oh, that's a wonderful studio production." It feels so real and so immersive. It's not even that big a budget of a movie. They basically would t- like almost like with Alien, they would find a way to redress the same. Yeah, 20 by 20 foot square foot patch over and over again change the color damp to dry red to brown whatever the case may be and they just found a way to create this hallucinatory horror experience of these girls slowly but surely going mad underground and what I love is that most horror movies always show people defenseless running in terror these chicks are established as pretty fucking badass early mm. on they're base jumpers they're adrenaline junkies they're real strong they can do like like juno when she does that standing split in the morning you're like oh my god you're hot <laughs> like but they're they're physical specimens who are very resourceful who can climb across ceilings with very little grip and when shit starts to go down they don't just run i mean they do some screaming and running but they also fight back they fight back with the picks and there's a particularly glorious scene that seems like something out of like an old viking movie when sarah and juno are back to back defending each other against just this invading wave of crawlers i was like whoa this isn't a horror movie this is a fucking just gory action movie in a lot of ways but that's what i love is that when it's thrilling it's thrilling when it's suspenseful it's suspenseful when it's terrifying it's terrifying you get to enjoy a, a wide range of emotions throughout this adventure yeah, so and it is it is definitely a roller coaster. There's no question and as I've seen it so many times and I still love it, uh the different things that I take out of each viewing. No question the last time I watched it, one of the things that really got me was just how badass Sarah and Juno are by the end. Yeah. And both of them have trial by fire. Yeah, and both of them have their trial by fire, but their trajectories are very different. Also, because we know about the tension. Juno's not aware yet, but we know <laughs> that Sarah's on to her and her 
multiple betrayals. Yeah. So so first the setup of the movie is this surprise and and I think it's I think it's one of those situations like you know the movie Up with Denzel Washington. Wait, is it Flight with Denzel Washington? No, the, the one where he's, he's the pilot? pilot? Yeah. I, 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 I occasionally see a Robert Zemeckis movie, but on the whole, I've given up on him. Oh, but, okay. Yeah, but I, but I know that some people liked it, but I did not see that one. So that's a movie, the, the only thing I'll say about that is that that's a movie where the advertising really sets you up for what the movie's going to be about. I heard about. they fucked up alcoholism in a big way, because most serious drunks don't have like a room full of like 30 different kinds of booze. They've got their <laughs> one brand. They've got their one brand, their one quantity. They will have a room of the identical bottles, yeah. but they're not going to be like, well, I've got my bourbon in the corner, my vodka in that corner, my fucking gin over here. <laughs> like no that's not how alcoholics drink they've got their one sauce their one label their one brand and they drink nothing but that around the clock but so i heard that and there's, there's a rumor he has like he's like pushing out multicolored shapes and bottles and like all right well you, you clearly didn't consult any actual alcoholics before making this movie <laughs> that's really funny because i was i was so stuck on how great his uh how great and to some extent, I felt like accurate was his cocaine addiction that I was I was not I was not really paying attention to his alcohol issues. Gotcha, fair enough. But once again, I, I'm only repeating what I've heard. I haven't seen it. So, <laughs> anyways, the point is is that that movie is a movie where like the people that did the marketing and the people that wrote the movie clearly were communicating a lot because you see the marketing of the movie, you know X is going to happen, and the movie begins and they sort of set you up for X to happen, and then a totally different thing happens. And this is a similar situation where I'm coming into this movie and I'm expecting. Okay, so stuff is going to happen in a cave, and then boom, stuff happens way before the cave, and it was just, it was such a, thr- it was such a thrill ride, and I felt like right away, I was caught up in the momentum of the movie, and all logic, all like, uh, uh, all disbelief that I could possibly bring to the film is immediately thrown out because I'm just so enwrapped with what's going on on screen, and I think that's a big credit to Marshall, and so the first stuff is just shock at what happens in the movie and some of the trauma and the tragedy that happens to Sarah and her family. But then very quickly, once they actually get to the cave, claustrophobia horror sets in. And that is something that is completely new to me. I do not have yeah, claustrophobia. The tunnel sequence is very intense. The, like the first yeah. challenge they have to overcome is just a very tight little shoot they have to go through. And Sarah gets stuck. And you, can, you feel like you've got 10,000 pounds of concrete pressing down in your chest like you're unable to breathe because her fear is so genuine. Yeah, and so I I know that I've had periods, not in a long time, but I've had, like, I can still, I still have body memory of having anxiety in the past, but I've never had that specific type of claustrophobia, and it still got me. When you see the screen is completely black, and there's one corner of the screen, and it's a light in a tunnel, and a woman crawling through it, I was like, all right, <laughs> what is going on but here? the essence of horror is preying upon our fear of the unknown, our fear yeah. of the dark. And what's better for a horror movie than a, a setting that is you quite literally can wave your hand in front of your face and not see anything. And the only source, from a lighting perspective, from a cinematic perspective, they're going to do their best to make sure that the only source of light you see in the movie are glow sticks or mm. torches or whatever, which I feel like is an interesting creative challenge to get over because it's very hard to light a movie that way. But man, it's immersive for the uh, for the viewer when you don't have like you can tell there's certain scenes where they cheat it like see this battle scene seems really well lit because soon <laughs> there's like one torch on the ground. But I think on the whole they pretty much get away with it where once they're underground, the only light we see is what they're carrying. Yeah, no, clearly them setting up that production rule where they're going to try to just use the diegetic lighting. Uh, they're just going to use the lighting that's actually in the movie. 
is amazing. And it, yeah, absolutely. Technically, this movie has so much going for it. Apparently, they got those glow sticks from some adult toy shop where it was oh, like no some, some sex shop. They're like, those are inexpensive and they're perfect. We'll take a thousand, please. <laughs> Scooped them up. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, I didn't know that. But yeah, no. And, and actually, they used the lighting eventually once everybody gets split up because apparently they were getting feedback and they saw in the editing room that people, sometimes people get confused about who is who. And so they would actually color code the different oh, cool. characters. So like the sisters, when they're separated, they just have the glow sticks. And then uh, Sarah has the torch. Yep. And then Juno has like a whole different lighting setup. And so they, you, it was easier to tell who is who based it's off of the lighting at that point. stories of pictures. That's yeah. What movies are all about. And, and that's totally what this movie is. And it's something that Marshall uh, talks a lot about how much they cut in terms of the different uh, monologues and dialogues that people had um, and different uh, just different ways of presenting information when they realized no we just want to we just want to show the action we just want to show uh, you know whether it's the MacGuffin that they introduce into the film with um, love each day uh, that necklace or whatever it is that was how they wanted to get everything across and and I think I think it pays off and so but it is kind of cool right because it's like Okay, so first I've been shocked. Now I'm feeling claustrophobia, fear. And then the very next thing is now there's heights because they have that great uh, crossing the chasm sequence. Yeah, yeah. And then you see a, a, a little remnant of spelunkers from 100 years ago. And if they made it out, they would have named it. They would have marked the cave on a map. But it's like, yeah. fuck, well, people have been here before, but clearly they didn't make it out the other side. Yeah, which always, I, I have to tell you, one of the movies, so many, it's clear Neil Marshall is a big movie fan. So many movies get uh, name checked uh, when talking about this movie. But one that I've never heard anybody discuss is The Goonies. There's a certain element of like a much darker version of The Goonies where you're retracing a former mythology, like a former, uh, you know, the, the whether it's the pirates or whether it's the people that have explored this cave before, um, going deeper and deeper. Uh, in that way and so yeah this is this is probably the last point where it feels like Goonies though because right after that happens once everybody discovers that uh, oh wow there are other people here um, Juno decides to be the hero again <laughs> and uh, ends up we get our first introduction to some real body horror because, yeah yeah when the girl gets her I mean, basically Juno falls and a girl gets burned down to the bone on her palms which is gross and but we also get the Irish girl who thinks she sees light and it's just some sort of like phosphorescent rock yeah. charge blunders on a head falls through a hole breaks her leg big ass bone but I feel like once again even if the crawlers never emerge this would have been a total nail biter just from the broken bones oh, and the yeah. lacerations on the hands and the claustrophobia. And you could have still even had the cave painting where like you know they're looking for that other entrance and so on and so forth. And it's just like I just love how from the as soon as this movie's firing on all cylinders, they're like, We're just gonna push you a little bit more over the cliff by giving you a thousand Nosferatus <laughs> running around <laughs> underground who like to eat people. Yeah, no, and it's funny. So it's, And they get teased early on. Like when you watch it now, it's such a little trail of breadcrumbs yeah. where if you listen very closely, you'll hear them making their little clicking sounds. There's one beautiful shot where you see uh, the face and profile and the actresses while shooting that scene weren't even aware that the actor had been planted in the scene. Like Neil Marshall very deliberately kept the crawlers and the actresses separate. Until the big reveal on the camcorder when they all freak out and scream. And it totally works because their fear is so genuine. And that's hard to do. Like, it's hard enough to make a movie. 
but it's really hard to have a gimmick where like, I'm going to keep this part of the crew separate from that part of this crew and then surprise them to get maximum dramatic impact. And it just shows how much Neil Marshall really loves shooting movies. And it seems like a lot of filmmakers who love writing movies or like editing movies, like planning movies or storyboarding movies. Neil Marshall likes shooting movies. He loves mm. to be on the set. And, that, and when you watch the documentary about the making of, that joy comes across. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the I, one of the weaknesses of horror films, and I, I'm not a person who has difficulties with uh, suspending disbelief. But one of the difficulties is always, what the heck are those people doing in the house? Yeah, leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly, just leave. But this movie, <laughs> it does such a great job of setting up why they can't leave. But the setup isn't just, oh yeah, now we're in this place, and oh, I left my cell phone at, you know, at the at the prom, and it's it's my boyfriend dumped it in the the bowl of uh, juice or whatever. No, like this is the build up to why they're trapped in the haunted house is just as scary or more scary than any aspect of the haunted house. It's amazing. Also, you get the additional wrinkle of the fact that they are betrayed by one of their closest friends. Oh, yeah. Who, they claim they're going one place, and so there's no one's coming to looking for them, and all the basically backup systems that you would put in place for going spelunking are not in place because she thinks it'll be really cool for them to discover this new system together and to name it. And she's basically rolling the dice with all their lives. And so I love seeing not only how some of them start to come unglued from the pressure, but the way they start turning on each other, not not trusting one another. And plus, we see as badass as Juno is, and physically she's probably the strongest, most resilient of all of them. Plus, she's also the person you want to keep like a five foot rule in effect with because she'll be kicking all kinds of ass and fucking up crawlers. And if you come up behind her to say, hey, what's up? She might just fucking put a pick through your neck and leave you to die because she feels guilty. I mean, she is a fair weather friend who runs as soon as uh, things get tough. So I watched this movie with my new girlfriend and she hasn't seen a horror film since Scream in high school. Wow, I mean, that was, what, Fall of 95 or something like that? So or? she, she, but she said, you know, I'm really scared of horror films, but now that I'm staying with you, like, let's watch a horror film. And so I was like, yes, we're watching The Descent. It's a good one to break that cold streak with. Because I yeah. think there are a lot of horror movies that have a lot of flaws, but The, the Descent doesn't have any, like, glaring weaknesses. Like, there's nothing amateur about it that might turn off a casual viewer. I feel like this is a great gateway drug into the horror genre. So, but uh, interesting to play against that, she immediately had a problem with the setup of the film because she's like, why the hell are they following Juno? Juno clearly is messing with them. Why are they jumping into this cave? Oh my God, they have no way out of the cave. Why are they following Juno? And so she- Female intuition. And so- <laughs> Guys like, was, yeah, of course, she's like the, the hot fun one. Of course you're going to follow her. <laughs> I have never questioned that, <laughs> which is- you know, I think I'm such a great movie watcher. This is the first time she's seen a horror movie in 20 years. Well, there are a few little teases, like when they're in the water at the very beginning, and the girl from England, who later gets stabbed in the throat by Juno, yeah. she's observing Juno and the husband, and you can tell she's aware of something no bueno. And the fact that she disappears so quickly after they're all at the, after the tragedy, like there are a few little warning signs that Juno's not entirely to be trusted. Right. But I think you would have to be a very perceptive viewer to realize that she's damaged goods. So, wh why do we think? And this is something I. This is one of the two questions. There are two questions, and it's not the typical stoner questions about like, oh, is it all in her head or not in her head. Because I, I don't know, I don't necessarily find that as interesting. But the two questions I've had both revolve around Juno. And the first one is, why is she really doing this? Does she have a death? Because 
I mean, th- there's a part of me that wonders, does she have a death wish? I guess she racked with guilt to the point where she's deliberately she's, throwing their lives away. Yeah, either deliberately or she's so reckless because she's trying so hard to compensate for the guilt That's that she's had to keep she, secret. The guilt is overwhelming and she's trying to overcompensate by giving Sarah this amazing experience and that'll allow her to ignore the fact that she played a role, most likely, right. in the marital tension that led to the accident. Because Holly... Uh, uh, jumps down into the into the cave, and Juno turns around and says, "Hey, no, we're doing this by the book. Yeah, safe." Yeah. And then you realize something is wrong here. She, she knows. <laughs> yeah, we. She on multiple viewings when she says that, like, "Oh, you fucking bitch! You know that y'all are rolling the dice with your lives." Like, why point. is what is Juno's major malfunction that she can tell Holly to be safe, and she can be she's being serious about it, but at the same time she's. She's jumped into this hole, and the only way is through in a network in a cave network that she's ne- like it's nobody's ever explored. What the? That's so. That's suicidal. Nobody yeah. would do that. And so, whether that's a logic flaw, which my girlfriend she could not get into the movie because she couldn't get past that. Wow. Every yeah. single time something scary happened, she said, "This is dumb. Why are they in the cave?" And I'm like, "Be quiet, Kelly. <laughs> like, yeah. This okay. is this is amazing. Don't get you stuck to- on it. Just roll with it." <laughs> And so I and so I have to think, yeah, there's something so wrong with Juno that she thinks this is a good idea. Because the other idea is that she's suicidal, and she's so suicidal she can't see that she's bringing everybody down with her. But on multiple occasions, she has actually risen, risen to the occasion. And whether it's chastising Holly for taking unnecessary risk, or whether it's like forcing Rebecca to go back for Sarah, like this is clearly somebody that maybe her morals are messed up and maybe she's off on some things, but she's also has some measure of loyalty and wanting to protect her friends. And uh, well, the jumping- actress who plays Juno had an interesting comment. I'm looking for her name right now. It is. Uh... Natalie Mendoza, who comes from Hong Kong, but she lived all over the world. She said one of the fun things about playing this part was that it wasn't written with a, a race self specified. And I feel like mm. today there's so much conversation about race, gender, sexuality, and representation, etc. But for me, if a character is only interesting because of their race, sexuality, or their gender, that's a, a, th- a thinly written character. She, she liked the fact that She's Asian playing it, but it's just it's just a character, and right. she happens to be Asian. And I feel like there is a, a major takeaway from that that if you really want to, like, if you really believe in making sure every single person on the planet gets represented in movies, cast them in anything. Don't write. Well, I'm going to write the crippled leper, you know, Lithuanian midget character because I want to represent crippled leper Lithuanian midgets. Cast a crippled leper Lithuanian midget yeah. as like a, the John Wayne part and, and and see what happens. For me, that is true representation, and I love how this movie is a shining example of that. Well, so I've had a lot of conversations about. So I wrote a horror script, and in writing it, I started thinking about specifically what is the difference between seeing horror visited upon a man and visited upon a woman, and and action films as well. I mean, Terminator, Alien, we already discussed, like. What is the difference between having a male protagonist and a female protagonist? And what I realized is, for this movie at least, this movie for me, I can't imagine it being all males because to some extent, I care so much more about the violence and the risk that's happening to the women in this movie. Whereas I think on to some extent, when something bad happens in a horror or an action film to a male, I think, oh, well, that's your fault. I think you're just cannon fodder, and if you are not Arnold or you know Sylvester Stallone, that's your fault. You should have gone to the gym. Whereas with the women, I'm constantly on edge, like, oh my gosh, don't, oh, you know. But I think also the character dynamics would be very different if those all dudes 
guys just behave. I went to an all guy boarding school, so I'm acutely aware <laughs> of what guys are like when you're around just guys for long periods of time. Yeah, yeah. And but I have a lot of friends who are girls who went to all girls schools. Like my little sister goes to an all girls school, and girls are very different when it's, when they're only around girls. Right. And I know the actresses had tons of input into their characters, and it seems like they. Like Neil Marshall was always willing to bend and improvise if the if the actresses had an interesting idea to flesh them out, and the relationships feel so real and so genuine. And I think if you cast it as all men, you would have to rewrite the script. So when Holly, it, Holly is the most obvious trope that I saw when I saw this movie because as soon as she steps on the on the scene in the cabin, I'm like, okay, she's the first one to go. No question. The woman who is the base jumper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the woman who's the risk-taking base jumper. I think she says sports fucker at one point. Yeah, she's got like, death written all over her. Yeah. <laughs> like she's going to be the first and one And an to amazing go. accent. Her accent's fucking adorable. And she's also, yeah, she's also, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that she is the most successful of the actresses uh, in the movie with their oh, in terms of like, afterwards. A, a, oh, gotcha. Because I know yeah, was like the actress who played Sarah obviously did Descent, Descent 2. Right, yeah. A lot of them. Which I'm not a fan of. Descent 2 is no Descent. Yeah. And the other actresses I've never seen again. But I looked a lot of them up while I was watching the movie. And they all have... They all have movies and shows and that sort of thing, but none of them really pop. This is a great, true, this is a true ensemble piece. Yeah, and I think Natalie Mendoza, the Juno character, I think, uh, one, I have to say, is my favorite character in the movie. And that is a new thing. And so we'll discuss that a little bit. But also, I think watching the movie, uh, my friend who introduced it to me, he's like, obviously, she's going to be the one that's going to have the great career afterwards. She was actually in the Spider-Man musical oh, interesting. and got injured early on. Wow. So she got a double whammy because of that. Spider-Man Into the Dark? Was that what yeah. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she was, she was Arachne in that. And if that had hit... But- People were getting injuries so left and right in that. Like stunt people were quite literally like flying into the crowd and like yeah. injuring the crowd. Like it was total chaos. Yeah, no. It, but if, if things had worked out, both that she hadn't got injured and also if the, if the musical had ever made it out of previews, she could have been a massive success story. It just didn't work out that way. She should have made some movies like uh, what the hell? What was um? Oh God, and what? The Indonesian action movie that came out yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah. What the hell is that one called? I'm totally blanking on it. it fucking ruled. Indonesian action flick. Bam, 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 bam. I'm sure it'll. The night comes for us. Yes, the first thing that comes up. Yeah, no. She clearly should have. But just she could have been, doing... been in movies like that and just oh, dominated. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what's the story now? According to the guidebook, this cave system has three ways in and out. This is just one of them. Isn't that right, Juno? Juno, that's right, isn't it? I checked the book. I didn't bring it. What? No point. For Christ's sake, Juno. I knew it. I knew this wasn't right. You filed a flight plan to Mountain Rescue. If we don't report in, they'll come looking for us. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to work, except I put in a flight plan for Borum Caverns, and this isn't Borum Caverns, is it, Juno? We're in the wrong fucking cave. Holly was right. Borum Caverns was a tourist trap. I Don't didn't... try and pin this fucking shite on me. This is not caving. This is an ego trip. Come on, Rebecca. I didn't know this was going to happen. This is exactly what we believe in. We've always said if there's no risk, what's the point? Well, don't try and justify this. Where, where are we? It hasn't got a name. It's a new system. I wanted us all to discover it. No one's ever been down here before. Fucking kidding. Oh, God. 
are we supposed to get out? There may not be a way out. Look, there's no going back now. We have to find a way out of this chamber and keep pushing forward. What do you think you're doing? We all trusted you. You told me this was going to be good for Sarah. Have you any idea what she's been through? No, because you couldn't get away fast enough, you selfish cow! You're we all lost something in that crash. Just get us out of here. Look, cave systems sometimes break ground. It's a small chance. But if we stay here, we'll die. Let's go. All right, let's dig into the nuts and bolts of the making of. Because one thing I thought was interesting about watching the documentary, it's a long documentary. It's like 35 minutes long. With all the crawlers, they didn't hire dancers and stunt people or physical performers like you would expect. They hired actors. And even if they're the crawlers only on screen for a couple seconds, he wanted each crawler, if possible, to try to imbue their role with the performance, which is an interesting approach because usually if a bunch of, like, say you're making Lord of the Rings and you've got a thousand Urukai charging mm. Helm's Deep, you hire a thousand sun people to charge Helm's Deep. You wouldn't say, hey, let's hire a thousand actors so each one can have a performance, et cetera, and so forth. But it does give the crawlers a little personality. They a great body. I think their body language and their posturing and the way they move, it's more menacing as a result. It's not just they're not just relying on the prosthetics and the makeup to be scary. The actors are getting a chance to channel something within them. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, Scar is like the one that has the you know the name in the credits. Yeah, he's the guy from Doc Soldier. So yeah, yeah he he's a pretty serious actor, and so um, th- that was really cool. But I think for me, uh, my favorite though is when you're introduced when Sarah fights the family, and you realize that these aren't just monsters; they're also they're also human too. They have. They have the same, you know, they're a colony, they're a little society, and they have the same familial relations as, you know, as Sarah did before, her unfortunate. Yeah. And it's not their fault that they look upon humans like cattle or, <laughs> or an elk. <laughs> We're just these weird, loud, noisy things that are really easy to hunt and kill because these creatures hunt by sound. they got these well-developed ears, they're totally blind, and as long as you're real quiet, then they, they, they will leave you alone. But if you go blundering through their home, yeah, they're going to get pissed off and they're going to yeah, fuck you up. Yeah, no, and I love the I love the way that they describe uh, the introduction of uh, the crawlers when they're looking through the uh, 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 through the um, ultra the intra- infrared or whatever. Uh, they're looking through the night vision in the video camera, and they're just scanning around the group, and the crawler just thinks he's a part of the group. He's just <laughs> hanging out there, and I got the other girl's like, "Hello, is there anybody?" She's just wailing inconsolably, like just so terrified and beside herself. And then you just see this fucking dude hovering over one of their shoulders. And it is, that is maybe the best. Yeah, there's no question about it. That's the best jump scare of the movie. First time you see it, it's a seat jumper. Yeah, no, their their monster introduction (laughs) definitely is very strong. And they said that was something they considered for quite some time. They were like, oh, should we have them? Should we have like a hand reaching out or what should they be doing? And they realized, no, let's just have them. Let's just have them be hanging out in the group like he thinks he's a part of. Yeah, and it's been teed up perfectly. Like Sarah sees one down at the end of a tunnel, and you're like, what the fuck is that? Like, you can barely see it. You have all this, and like, of course, very early on, when they first drop down, like, the well into the cave, Sarah sees the little bloody finger marks, like, on the side. So we've had 
a million clues, but suddenly just seeing one just standing there right amongst them. And of course, it starts circling. It's not afraid of them. Anytime an animal is circling you, guess what? It's looking to eat you. They don't circle you because they're trying to get away. They circle you because they're looking for vulnerability. And so, yeah, shit starts to go down very quickly. And yeah, they just they just kind of fall to pieces and scatter in all directions. And then it's almost like, yeah, it's just complete total bedlam from that point on because you can't get your bearings. They're kind of trying to get out. They're kind of trying to save each other, but it's basically just pure blind survival. If I go over there, I might live a little bit longer, but there's not a yeah. lot of rhyme or reason to their strategy from that point on. Yeah, no, clearly. And so, but, uh, but the crawler has a strategy, of course, because Holly's injured, clearly very injured. So she's the first one to go, absolutely. which makes total sense. Yeah, she's you got know, the from animal logic. And they fuck her up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She's clearly the slowest gazelle. And so they kill her. And then, uh, so, but in terms of production, it's kind of funny because you said uh, they, uh, Neil Marshall and the team kept the crawlers separate uh, from the girls, uh, from the women. And uh, apparently his instruction was, okay, we're going to do the intro. Uh, You're going to meet a crawler. But whatever you do, just stay where you are. And so the crawler shows up and everybody immediately (laughs) scatters. (laughs) And some of them were laughing. But yeah, they hauled ass in all directions. But I imagine, though, they just... It seems like the energy on the set was just very contagious and very yeah. excited. Very excited, and I love the sense of humor on the set when they're always referring to that one really thin tunnel as the vagina and things yeah. like that. And it seemed like the girls were totally game, and it wasn't a fun shoot. They were wet and cold and dirty most of the time. And they said when you would go home at night, it would just it would take hours to wash all the shit off, and you're just gonna have to start the whole process all over again the next day because you're just covered in dirt and grime and filth, and you're shivering. And it'd be really easy for everybody to get kind of bitter and have a, be a bad sport about it if the, the mood on the set weren't a lot of fun. And it seems mm. like Neil Marshall struck the perfect tone where everybody's like, we're in for a penny, we're in for a pound, we're going to have fun with this, even if we're going to suffer a bit along the way. Yeah, it's pretty clear that Neil Marshall brought a lot of humor to the set, and you see some of those outtakes where he's, you know, somebody's fighting covered in blood, they're throwing more blood on Sarah, and then as soon as the shot's over, he's laughing maniacally. And so, and it sounds like a lot of the, a lot of the actresses became friends on set and were like partying a lot. And so, yeah, it sounds, I mean, that... You guys and Wrong Real introduced me to the, the great Kurt Russell, John Carpenter, and like Kurt Russell uh, uh, commentary tracks. The Neil Marshall with the cast commentary track for The Descent is oh, I haven't is listened like to it right up there. So funny, nice, very cool. Yeah, I mean, my all time favorite commentary track is still John Millis and Arnold Schwarzenegger for Conan the Barbarian. And <laughs> I don't know if another commentary track will ever come close, but. Every once in a while, you get a good one. Occasionally, you get just a really bad one where, where like, the people just start watching the movie and they forget. Like, they need to be... It's, yeah. a, it's a show within yeah, a show yeah. to do the commentary. Like, I remember when I was watching the commentary track for The Devils, and at a certain point, you can tell Ken Russell's just watching it. I'm like... <laughs> All right, that's great that you still enjoy watching it, but you need to talk. And same thing happened with John Carpenter watching the early 1950s version of The Thing, which he first saw when he was like seven. Like halfway through, you can tell he just runs out of energy and starts watching it like he's a kid again. I'm like, oh, then I might as well just turn the commentary track off because you're just you're just zoning out and vegging out like a, like a little, little boy. That's awesome. Yeah, no, and so that scene is great when the crawl is introduced and, and you, get an, you get a sense that Juno is a total badass. We also get Sarah separated into the den of blood which is visually, I won't say that it's my favorite scene, but visually has some of the most striking imagery of the entire movie. And then, of course, we have the moment in the movie. You say your favorite jump scare is when uh, Scar is introduced uh, uh, on, the, on the camera screen. For me, it has to be Beth. It has to be Beth getting the pick right through the neck. Yeah, it's hardcore. 
and and you know um it's one of those things where we've already gone back and forth on juno right like juno has had a couple of We're major character through acting and juno's immediate response is not to look after her and say are you okay can i bandage you up it's yeah. to back away and not take ownership of what she's done but okay so up until this point juno has had a bunch of major major mess ups where you're thinking this is the worst human being in the world she's sleeping with this guy's husband uh, with this woman's husband and then she sends them down into this cave and gets them trapped and she really is sort of in denial about it then she hurts rebecca's hand because she pulls this stunt where she's going to now try to get all the crampons whatever those things yeah. are called i mean it's well intentioned because they're they're low on ropes because they lost one of the rope bags but it's still a little bit like she's trying to show off a little yeah. bit yeah yeah, she's yeah, she's trying too hard to make up for us uh, to make up and, and make it like she's contributing. She's always overcompensating. <laughs> she's always overcompensating for a whole lot of things. Um, and this is the first scene where we've realized she doesn't need to overcompensate. She just kicked the crap out of a crawler. Yeah, you know she. She's totally, by far the best killer in the bunch. Uh, well, at this point, I, at yes. this point, she's like, all right, whoa. <laughs> You're like a warrior born. You've been waiting for your whole life for this moment to fight crawlers. And and if you think about it, it's really, it's not just for her own survival. She's also trying to prevent Holly from getting dragged away. So at this point, she is down to put herself at risk to protect somebody who's been injured. But then, <laughs> immediate. so we're all cheering for Juno. And then she does... The unspeakable, the the infinitely tragic. I don't know what it is, but the totally shocking. And it, Beth sells it so well. Oh. Remarkable. I mean, like the actresses. I just want to go through. Like, they got all these actresses from like a bunch of different like Western European countries. But they got uh, Shauna McDonald to play Sarah from Scotland, but she was born in Malaysia. You got Natalie Mendoza, who we've mentioned. Alex Reed, who plays Beth, she's born in England. Saskia Mulder, who's Rebecca, who's from the Netherlands. Mayanna Burring, who plays Sam, who's originally from Sweden, but then she moved to Great Britain. And then Nora Jane Noon, who plays Holly, who comes from Ireland. But it's funny, when you're watching it, I guess because I'm an American, you just kind of assume they're all from kind of like the same, <laughs> same part of the world. But then as you watch it like multiple times, like, oh, yeah, you can kind of tell that they're all from different regions, et cetera, and have different codes of conduct. But, yeah, Beth, she just she sells that betrayal so much, and especially when Sarah finds her later on, when she sticks her hand up from beneath like a yes. pile of dead bodies. And she warns her, like, don't trust her. Like, you cannot trust her. And it's like, ooh, man. And, and that's when Sarah finally starts to really realize that, there might be something more dangerous down in these caves with them than the crawlers, and it might actually be Juno. Even though Juno yeah. would never—it's unintentional, but Juno's just she's the kind of friend. Uh, what's, what's that old expression like? Um, with the kind of friend with a friend like her, you don't need enemies. Like, yeah, just having her around, something bad's going to happen to you. Yeah, in the first five times I watched the movie, that's my focus. But now, as I watch it, the thing that I'm seeing is so Juno's going through this relatively human, like a normal. Like she's having the wrong reactions to things, but also very much like I recognize. Oh yeah, some mistakes that I've made in the past we from see our Juno's own eyes. In her, without a doubt. Whereas Sarah's journey, so Sarah, so Sarah's got her own journey too, right? She's clearly deeply, deeply traumatized. First of all, let's start off with even before Sarah's traumatized, it's pretty clear that she's a wet noodle compared to Juno and the other people in her life. Her husband's cheating on her. Um, and you know, there's just a part of me that thinks like she is a nice person. She's nice, but kind of fragile. <laughs> she's nice, but kind of fragile. And then she becomes way more fragile. And as she's introduced into the cave, 
she first of all she doesn't do enough to stand up for herself in terms of like this isn't safe for me this isn't a good idea for me right now i'm in a fragile position and beth actually reaches out to her and says this might not be a great idea let's go get drunk and do yeah, line do, dancing with some go, boys let's go hit on locals yeah and instead you know she just she wants to do what juno wants to do okay and then she gets down into the cave and who's the one that gets stuck who's the one that has the panic attack in the tunnel sarah and uh, Sarah continues this trajectory until she reaches that breaking point. She reaches the same like Juno versus Beth point where Juno, something happens to her. Something now happens to Sarah where Sarah very quickly loses her light source and only has the video camera. Sees like a body getting eaten, is a close proximity with a crawler, and then sees Beth her only friend. Now, clearly she finds out that Juno uh, betrays her, but that actually isn't the tragedy of that scene. Beth is, for all extents and purposes, the only thing left in this woman's life. She's already trapped in a freaking cave. Her best friend in the world is now dying in front of her, and she's getting this other tragic news. And she news. has to finish her off, or she begs her to finish her oh off. Oh my God, the euthanasia. Yeah. So she's already starting to crack. Yeah. But then, and the, the, just a relentless movie, and but it still it doesn't feel like it's haphazard, which I know is some of the stuff that has been the criticism of Neil Marshall's later movies. But it doesn't feel haphazard because the next thing that happens is she sort of closes the circle. She gets attacked by a child, then she has to finish the child ruthlessly, then she has to face the mother. So now she's come completely full circle, and you know, it, it, okay, so maybe it's all consistent, but clearly no subtlety whatsoever. However, she jumps into, a, you know, she falls into a, a pool of blood and then she has her apocalypse now rise yeah, from she's, the, she's, she's reborn. reborn. Yeah. <laughs> and you really see that in her eyes later on when Juno is kind of fled down a cliff face and Sarah kind of like steps into frame and she's covered in blood oh, and the yeah. way she's looking at Juno, it's so confident and so ruthless and so penetrating. But while we're on the subject of Sarah, to what degree do you give credence to the there's a, a read of the film, which I don't subscribe to, but yep. it's very popular, that there are no crawlers. Sarah kills them all. And there was a cut early on of the film yeah. where you did see a crawler in the hospital Yep. to make it abundantly clear that it is all in her head. But Neil's like, that's a little heavy-handed and a little obvious and leaves no room for speculation or interpretation. So he wisely removed it. And I think there's abundant evidence that this is all just some big nightmare journey inside her head. I don't prefer to read it that way, but to what degree do you kind of buy into that interpretation? So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question twice. The first way I'll answer that the first way I'll answer that question is Neil Marshall, being a student of film and knowing the effect he wanted this movie to have on people, he it, it purposefully uh, invested the film with multiple readings. Uh, he did dial it back. He did decide not to have the crawler in the hospital, but he did keep in the fact that when um, Sarah breaks and screams after killing the uh, crawler family, that everybody else hears it as a crawler. Now, uh, that little sound editing is a much smaller piece, um, uh, but still the ideas. And, and, and a, another example is, of course, Neil Marshall. He gave his script to a female friend who is of the more academic bent. And she immediately was like, dude, this is a sex. This is like a porno. You've written a, a horror <laughs> porno. It's all symbolism. You know, they're climbing through moist caves and there are these white men that are chasing after them and they're bathing in blood. Like this is a thinly <laughs> veiled metaphor for like, it's like what? You know, what? <laughs> and so Neil Marshall, he, to his credit, I think, decided like, let's lean in, like, let's add that layer. And so Neil Marshall was investing the movie with different layers. Okay, so that's answer number one. 
Answer number two, zero percent. Zero percent of me thinks that this movie is anything but exactly what you see. The crawlers are real. Uh, yes, the, the humans in the cave are just as dangerous as the crawlers to some extent. But no, I, and Sarah has clearly got many screws loose. This definitely is not happening all in her head. There are too many things. Oh, they find the elk outside the cave before they even get there, and it, it, it could have been attacked by a bear, but it suggested that it was one of the crawlers that was feeding on it. There's no way to read the actions that everybody else has as Sarah, right? Because that would mean that Sarah would have had to jump on Sam when Sam was hanging at the end. Uh, and then gets stabbed and falls into the water in Juno event. Like, no, there's just too many independent crawler yeah, activities. Too many giant holes, yeah. Yeah, the, the, that theory, I think, holds like zero weight with me. But it's one that Neil Marshall intentionally added some hints to it because he knows by having like different layers, by having ambiguity yeah, Makes it more mystery, fun to talk about. Makes it more fun. Yeah, hell yeah. All right, well, let's get um, a little snooty about fine art. What do you think about the poster design, which is an homage to this classic nude body skull thing that Dali put together? But there's a very famous picture of Dali posing by these girls in this position as the skull, and they have a lot of pictures as they're putting it together. And obviously, I think the Dali po- photo is just the girls, and then there's another photographer who did Dali with his photo. So it's kind of it's hard to know which one is like the official work of art. But on the I think it was on Silence of the Lambs poster, one version of it. But obviously, there's a couple of different versions of the Descent poster. One is just Sarah coming out of the blood. But the one that I love is all of them in their camping gear with their hiking boots doing the skull image. And it's absolutely extraordinary when you when you first see it. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And it, both of those posters, <clears throat> excuse me, both of those posters uh, create such a strong reaction to me that I've never, up until preparing for this podcast, I've never really looked closely at them because they were just, they were kind of too much for me. They were like overstimulating, but definitely the skull poster is yeah. my favorite. No bullshit floating head Photoshop nonsense. <laughs> it just every poster now, 99 of 100 posters, a stupid bunch of floating heads with Photoshop. It's like, oh, like every other poster that's being made? Like, it just drives me crazy. It's pretty clear that the American distributors knew that they had like something special here. And the movie yeah. did. The movie did like a great multiplier, 10, 15, 20, depending. I don't know how much the pound was at that time, but the budget was like three and a half million pounds and movie made $60 million. I mean, phenomenal. It, it did just fine. Yeah, that, 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 that's a runaway success without a doubt. We have to talk about Sarah versus Juno. I mean, we can basically, once Sarah... That's the crux of the film. Yeah. Once Sarah does the baptism of blood, and, you know, Rebecca and Sam have... And that's obviously tragic because their sister relationship is awesome. But once we basically... Once Sarah reconnects with Juno, knowing what she knows about Juno... uh, It's the ticking clock. She's going to fuck her up. Sarah already looks horrifying, and, and Neil Marshall, like, color graded her eyes to really stand out starkly against her very white skin and the red, red blood and the black around her. It's oh, these blue incredible. eyes. Yeah. It's amazing. And so, but you also know, like, that woman has lost it. Like, she is pure. She is pure animal. She is totally the duality of the d- duality of woman. There's no duality there. She is all crawler at this point. And um, when they face off against it, well, first they face off against the crawlers, and that's badass. You see two women. Yeah. So it's it, the best action scene of the flick, without a doubt. It is. In terms is. of, like, pain oh, yeah. and combat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, you, it's, but if you think of the odds of it, right, because the crawlers are pretty badass. They're pretty strong. They can crawl on walls. They're, crawl and they're on pretty ceilings. ruthless. Yeah. And, but clearly these two women are, like, now, like, battle-hardened, and you see, like, they both have something to prove. Uh, 
But it's essentially, imagine if, like, the two best female MMA fighters, who are clearly badasses, faced off against three really great, like, not the best, but three next-level male MMA fighters. It's pretty clear, nine, you know, 99 times out of 100, the three males are just going to, it's going to be, uh, you know, a bloodbath. How dare you? Uh, I didn't but, suggest that. But right? Yeah, I mean, but you're right. <laughs> and so, and I, I think And the, the girls who train in MMA would the first to tell you, just the guys are built differently. Different yeah. bone density in the hands. There's a reason why 135-pound male MMA athletes don't compete against 135-pound female athletes. They, yeah. It's two separate sports, and they train together alongside each other, and they support each other, and they're in each other's corners. But when times when it's time to step into the octagon, separate. But you know the the gender aside, but it's also they're you know they're in the crawler's home territory. And it's and of a sensory disadvantage. And so there's no question that no matter how bad, like these uh, Juno and Sarah have to be totally badass in order to win this fight. And they're outnumbered. And that you know yeah. they're and outnumbered. Like jabbing thumbs through eyes and picks in the skull. But it's also one of the things where you back somebody into a corner, they're going to fight a little bit harder. Yeah. So and they, it's just like, well, this is there's nowhere else to run to. So. I got nothing else to lose, so it's time to fucking throw down, fight to the death. So totally badass sequence, and then that great reveal where, so Sarah and Juno win, and yes, Sarah, Juno realizes that, okay, I thought Sarah had changed a little bit, now I know, this woman is, this woman's a goner. And uh, that's that's when uh, wordlessly Sarah decides to reveal to Juno, like, I know, you were stooping my Telling husband. Telling the story in pictures, absolutely. And, um... But at this point, this is when... Cold as ice, leaving Juno to be eaten, jabs her to the knee, and it's right there, it's like a tidal wave, like a human wave attack, a crawl yeah. coming their way, and Juno's just like, oh, like I'm good, but this, this might, be, <laughs> might be a little beyond my skill set. So this is my second major question. Like I said, the two major questions I've been thinking a lot about are around Juno. The second question is, did Sarah do that totally strategically, or did Sarah do that knowing... Let me back up. Uh, Naked and Afraid, you watch it, and they say on that show, two equals, when you're in survival mode, two equals one, one equals none. So they're lost in this cavern. They've just fought together, like total badasses, like, you know, the ultimate. It's like Subutai and Conan at the end of Conan the Barbarian. And so they're there. Two against many. Yeah, they can, and so they can continue on through the cave, and they have way better odds together. Yeah. And yet. Sarah's like, no, I don't. I think my best strategy is to kill you because I hate you. Well, I was having an old joke. My stepdad used to tell me about two guys are going through the woods and uh, they get attacked by a grizzly bear. And they, they get, there's a little distance between them and the bear. And one guy bends down and starts tightening and tying his shoelaces. And he's like, you can't outrun a bear. He's like, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. And I was like, so I think maybe Sarah at the point's like, I don't know if I'm getting out or not, but I'm going to leave a little bait as a diversion, and then we'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, at that point, whether or not Sarah's even consciously mapping out a strategy, who can say, because she's in full-blown animal kind of crawler mode at that point. Yeah, and I, again, the way that I've watched the movie has changed over time. Now that I watch it, I think, here's a woman who strategically should keep Juno by her side. Juno is a, Juno's a much better... Uh, uh, climber than Sarah is. I think at this point, Sarah's pretty clearly a better fighter, but they still may have to climb together. And they still may have to fight together. Yeah. <laughs> they still may have to fight. So why does she not keep around? And that is actually phenomenal because Juno's trajectory is eventually she becomes self-sacrificing. Eventually, when she's with Rebecca, Rebecca says, let's get the hell out of here. Juno says, no, I'm not leaving without Sarah. So Juno has come... She's a well-written character. She's got contradictions. She's got... And I feel like if you... 
A one-dimensional character is boring as hell, but that's what makes drama fun. Is Juno is definitely the most complex character, yeah. arguably, from a, from a structural standpoint in the screenplay. Whereas Sarah completely skips that. Sarah goes from Wet Noodle to Gomer Pyle-level psychopath. Le- Leatherface. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love the fact that she is faced with... She's faced with this moment of choice, like, do I somehow reconcile with this person who has caused me so much pain? No, revenge is a dish best served cold. Go, go, <laughs> she needs that payback. And she's like, you know, she basically and is I like... I think the audience needs it as well at that point. I think she's like, basically, screw it. If this means I die too, I don't care. I'm getting yeah. you first. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Going down swinging. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, she, she wants that little bit of payback because... Juno's brought a lot of hardship into her life. But once again, I do prefer the bleak ending because it's, it's set up so perfectly. She's running along. She falls, hits her head, and then suddenly there's daylight, the mountain of bones. She crawls out. It's this beautiful sequence. It makes perfect sequ- sense that it is yet another dream because also, also we've seen, it's been established throughout the movie, she does have these really vivid kind of waking dreams. And I feel like this is yet another one. And it's a perfect tease. And I just prefer those bleak, ambiguous 70s horror endings as opposed to a happy ending with like a weird jump scare where if there had been any evidence whatsoever of any kind of ghost or the supernatural or anything at any point, other point in the movie, then I wouldn't have a problem with like the Juno ghost at the end. Mm. But for that as your final shot and then Sarah looking into the camera and screaming, it just doesn't, it doesn't match the rest of the movie unless right. it's a dream. As a dream, it totally matches because it's just yet another dream from this crazy person. So I, so I think Mandy, I think now Mandy clearly steals, uh, sorry, spoiler alert for pe- people who haven't seen Mandy yet, but I think Mandy clearly is now, uh, the descent draws this ending from Brazil. And I think eventually, uh, or a current Mandy. bridge or there, there are a bunch of movies where you had that framing device yeah. of it being in someone's head. Like they are imagining an escape and then the neck snaps. Yeah. And so I, my sense is that it's uh, my sense is that the way to watch this, if the, if you watched in the film, uh, the theaters in the U S would be, that's what it is. Yes. She has escaped, but she's also stark raving mad and she's seeing things. Yeah. It's like the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She escapes, but it, like what kind of life is she gonna have? Yeah, <laughs> she's 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 off for good. Yeah, totally. And I think for a long time I liked that ending better, just because I like the production of that ending. I love, you know, the Jacob's ladder, her climbing up the the uh, you know the hill of bone uh, and escaping. And again, we talk about like the the sexual metaphor. It's my favorite of all the sexual metaphors. It's, it's her also like her reaching. second rebirth. She yes. was reborn out of the pool of blood, and then we see her coming out of like the earth womb and like reaching yeah. out. But yes, yeah, beautiful in terms of shot composition, emotion everything it all comes together in that and you're just you feel such you forget oh my i haven't seen daylight like in an hour at this point yeah. you get this incredible sense of euphoria once you oh. actually see daylight oh i'm getting excited again yeah and apparently marshall decided to overexpose the uh the film when she's leaving when she's leaving the the hole um and so yeah so when you're in the audience and i've seen this at a midnight showing uh, back in back in Brookline, Massachusetts, and yeah, no, it's like two a.m. in the morning. <laughs> you see, you see this bright overexposed light, and it hurts your eyes, but it also makes you so excited. Like, oh my gosh, yes, we've we've escaped the claustrophobia. And yeah. then you know, it totally makes sense that we're happy that she escaped. We're happy, but we're also know that she, nobody could ever really escape from all that this woman's been through. She's never going to come back, and that's like fine as an ending uh, emotionally or like plot wise. But I think just the techni- like the way the ending is pulled off, I think for a long time I preferred that. However, I agree with you now. I think there's no question. I just want like 
I just want the uh, uh, the abyss. I want just nihilism. I want, uh, you know, nobody goes that deep and makes it out alive. Yeah, no compromises. Well, I was listening to an episode of Pure Cinema Podcast with friend of the show, Brian Saar, yesterday. And they did this really fun thing where they had uh, Patrick Bromley from F This Movie on. And they were basically inventing fictitious kind of all-night horror movie marathons. And you just mentioned that you saw this at a midnight screening. If, since it is Halloween, it's come right around the corner 10 days from now, if you were planning an all-night movie marathon, I feel like The Descent is a great one to use because it's so thrilling, it's so exciting. People aren't going to fall asleep watching this. Right. They're going to they're gonna be jazzed, they're going to be energized. You need horror movies that are going to be able to keep people going. Real quick, just as a movie lover, movie fan, plan for us an imaginary horror movie marathon, including some trailers and some horror movies that you just particularly love as the host of Film Baby Film that would make up your ideal horror movie Halloween experience. So, um, keeping with some contemporary stuff, I think, oh, and particularly like of the female bent, I loved Raw by Julia DeCornow. Gotcha. And that is a movie that, uh, whatever the symbolism is in The Descent, uh, Raw takes it to the next level. And Raw also really emphasizes like body horror and it also has an angle of like, uh, uh, it also has other angles as well, like uh, addiction and the inability to control like what your body's doing and who what you who you are at any given moment. And I just found that movie to be both like, uh, it's like cringe terror and also immaculately shot. I mean, you know, just just like French cinema in a horror film and it, shockingly it was uh the director's first film and so that would be a movie i would immediately want to throw in there as well what about any french extremity that would make the cut yeah <laughs> i mean i think they i think raw is sort of grouped in with the french extremity um like the most disturbing one that i've seen is martyrs yeah so martyrs gets gets under my skin i was gonna say that the descent is i think my like the scariest movie I've seen uh, this uh, in the 21st century, but I was gonna add the caveat that I've never seen Martyrs, and I have to tell you, it's it's intentional. I think I'm I think I'm scared. Well, the descent for me is so fun and so exciting and so thrilling, and it's energizing. Whereas Martyrs, it's like <laughs> hurts my soul. <laughs> it's just it goes it goes to the darkest place I've seen a horror movie go to. And I've seen a lot of, I mean, I, I, would, I would never say I'm like the form, world's foremost authority in horror because every time I think I'm starting to get a pretty firm grasp on horror, I will listen to something like this latest episode of Pure Cinema Podcast. I'm like, wow, there's still so many great horror movies out there that I still haven't even seen. But I feel pretty confident that in the 21st century, when it comes to combining artistry and something that's deeply disturbing, Martyrs is right now the, the reigning heavyweight champion for me. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, and so what I've been told is essentially that that is like a must-see movie, but it's also one that I may not ever want to rewatch again. You can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I am you looking. Scrape, you can't scrape the flavor off your tongue. You're gonna keep it with you. <laughs> I am looking forward to seeing that eventually, but I'll admit I've been holding out. I think, um, I think in terms of tone, I think uh, there are few movies that do such it's few horror movies that do as good a job at like capturing tone in the dark and all of this other stuff as I really enjoy this J horror movie cure. 
Okay. Which is uh, which is available. I think it's on the Criterion channel right now. And that is a movie where it's like totally opposite. The tension is not about being trapped somewhere or like uh, 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 being caught up in the momentum of a, like a really action-packed plot. It's more of just oppressive tone everywhere and pure, pure nihilism. Um, and it's just, you know, it like looks like a J-Har film filmed by Tarkovsky. And so I think if I were going to do this as an all-nighter, that would definitely have to be earlier in the night. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you have to place them in the, the correct order yeah. so that it's like a song with the proper crescendos and decrescendos. And you got you to gotta plan very carefully. And also, if you pick really good trailers, you run the risk of the movie seeming kind of boring by comparison because you have to reset oh. for each movie. So I'm a big fan of movie marathons, including trailers. Yep. But. Trailers require very little attention span, and you can you can easily fall into the trap of spoiling your audience with too many good trailers. Like one of my all-time favorites is the uncensored equivalent of like a red band trailer for Dawn of the Dead, which is like three and a half, four minutes, like a really long trailer, and it just has great music and it's great gore, etc. But it really sets the perfect tone. In a lot of ways, I kind of prefer just watching the trailer over the movie because I don't have to sit through a two-hour experience. I just get, I get the full Dawn of the Dead experience just in, in a couple of minutes. But that's definitely one of my all-time favorite horror trailers. I would say uh, another great movie for um, uh, for a series like this would have to be Mandy. And Mandy, what Mandy has, I think, a lot in common with The Descent. I think one of the things it's clear that they're both like hardcore homages to '70s and '80s horror, and um, and both like intensely action-packed just thrilling I mean, to watch got, in the movie mandy's theater. got really long chainsaws <laughs> <laughs> mandy was my best theater experience i had last year and i had there were movies that i liked more than mandy that i saw last year but in terms of the entire like a packed house alma draft house opening night everybody's there to get weird everybody's there on the same page nobody's talking nobody's got their phones out and the alma draft house did this thing where they created a highlight reel of just weird Nicolas Cage moments from mm. the early 80s up to the present day. I love it. So they were really priming the audience with like, you know, the bees sequence and stuff like that from like the remake of The Wicker Man all the way back to like him getting in like knife fights and fucking raising Arizona. And so you were just so ready for the Nicolas Cage undiluted experience. And then Mandy begins. And I just couldn't believe how immersive and how powerful and overwhelming it was just in terms of the music and the tone and the humor and the cheddar goblin. I was just in a state of glee. It was, it was, I was like the happiest I was all last year walking out of a movie. I was just in a state of euphoria. Yeah, when I saw it, I saw it at Sundance, and it was completely packed house. And it's definitely the funnest experience I've had at Sundance. Definitely the best movie experience I had last year. And uh, But there was a point, 45 minutes into the movie, ovation inside of the, you know, when he, when he gets the... Uh, when he creates the axe, people just lost it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that's like, the this sort of really good movie. Just got like way better. <laughs> and so I feel like if you were doing an all night marathon, I feel like you'd put the descent in there, you know, around midnight or around two a.m. And then you could put Mandy in there at like four and just you know get people re-energized all over again for sure. Yeah, well, I went to Buttonumathon one time in Austin, and one of their tricks was, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long marathon. It was 25 hours that year. Like, usually it's only 24, but they decided to show a Miyazaki.
Miyazaki film, The Wind Rises at the end and made it go 25 and you have halitosis and everybody stinks and the whole place <laughs> smells like food and just drool and it's just, it's gross by the end and I was not in the mood to watch like a two hour meditative Japanese film about flight yeah, yeah. at that point. Like you, you got to plan that last movie very carefully and they, they, Harry Knowles chose the precisely wrong movie to, uh, to end that with. But in between some of the movies, they would pass out trays of uh, shots of tequila, and they'd have you stand up, turn to the person to your side, smack them across the face, and then take a <laughs> shot of tequila just to keep like the energy, because it's really hard to sustain that momentum. Like an all-night screening, you can drink a couple cups of coffee and power through, but yeah. for a fucking 25-hour marathon, you got to... You got to be very clever in terms of how do we sustain momentum for that long a time. And I don't think Harry Knowles was remotely successful. There are a lot of weird, random fucking flicks in there that I think just were total mediocrities. But that's, oh, that's really funny. That's really so. If you were going to plan such a thing and you had to put like an art, not an art house, like not like content, but like if you had to put in like a classic horror film, whether it's Universal or like you know some some uh, Dutch film or whatever. If the horror what is your started at noon? Yeah. If it's gonna go noon to noon, the very first movie I'd start with probably be James Whale's Old Dark House. Like, I like you, it. You can't throw an Old Dark House at three in the morning. Be like, <laughs> but to start with. Hell yeah, it would be so goddamn cool. And that's my favorite kind of haunted house movie I've ever seen. And I think it's the best film that James Whale ever made. And I just love everything about it. And so I would, I would, I would open up with Old Dark House just recognizing that you can't go back to the – you can't double dip into the 30s again. you got to yeah. slowly but surely build your way up toward – crazy music and hallucinatory Italian experiences or French yeah. extremity, but you got to keep up in the ante. You can't, once you've upped the ante, you can't dial it back or it'll just seem like nothing in comparison. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to, I definitely want to go to your all night horror movie marathon. That'd be a blast. Well, if I were going to host one, it wouldn't even be at a theater. I would want to host one for like six or seven VIPs and get a lot of drugs and alcohol and <laughs> strippers and make it special, like really get weird. And so make it the coolest all night party of all time because yeah, trying to pro like, the job of a programmer is very challenging and very difficult. And you really got to know your audience. I think you have to run a theater for a long period of time to really recognize who are your regulars? How are they going to respond to things? Like if you are a programmer like Tarantino at the new Beverly, he knows his audience and he kind of knows what they like and what they'll respond to. And I think having a detailed understanding of who your regulars are would inform your decision-making process. It's not just about, I'm going to kind of project my own tastes and preferences onto everybody else and make them endure what my ideal. Cause if you're programming for yourself, it's entirely different than programming it as a business model when you're running a theater, because you have to think beyond yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I'd I'd have to I take issue with that because I feel like uh, a wrong reel is such a tastemaker, not only in terms of like, you know, how many. I mean, I just watched my first Bud Bodiger movie oh, nice. the other Very day. Cool. Yeah, 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 Ride Lonesome. He's awesome. Oh, yeah, you started with a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, oh, phenomenal that ending. I won't say anything other than that, but oh man, that final shot is yeah. awesome, special. And so, you know, uh, I feel like you could, you would do just fine, you know, <laughs> forcing people to watch your stuff because right. basically my nightmare, <laughs> <laughs> people are already doing that anyways. They're, you know, they're listening to your podcast, watching the movies they've well, never be seen the before. The, night, and... the last film would just have to just be a straight up like erotic horror movie because like if you're going to keep up in the ante, I'd probably end with vampires from 1974 because that's my favorite erotic horror film. Like, okay. You would have to have some serious reward, like, like uh, some serious payoff for Ooh. all that patience. Oh gosh, why am I blinking? I just saw Tony Scott's vampire movie. Oh, the Hunger? Oh my gosh. It's erotic as well. Yeah, that is amazing. With the flower duet and Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon touching and kissing and 
taking their shirts off as you have this beautiful soaring opera and yeah it's it's it's, it's wonderful but yeah david bowie and Catherine Deneuve, they're cultural icons and it was perfect to put them in a movie together i just uh, i'm you know i i know susan sarandon as like a elder stateswoman of uh hollywood and you know just like global culture and to see her a young susan sarandon and she's not even that young in that i mean if you want to see young susan sarandon you got to go to like like early 70s movies and mid 70s like rocky Horror picture show wasn't even her first movie and that's like what 74 or something like that so yeah, yeah she's she, she's no um, i mean by the time she did bull durham in the late 80s she was past 40 oh yeah i guess that's true i guess yeah she's still she's still seductive in bull durham but Gosh, she is like next level hot. Yeah. Oh, without the a hunger. Doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. I, I mean, I love and adore Catherine Deneuve, but when it comes to the hotness, Susan Sarandon brings the heat in that in that particular movie. But yeah, I, the most popular thing I've ever posted on the internet is my top ten erotic horror films post. And to this day, if you just go to Google and write in top ten erotic horror, I'm always kind of curious to see <laughs> how, without even saying movies or film, just top ten erotic horror. If you just Google yeah. that. Number two, top ten erotic horror films, wrong real productions, and IMDb is beating you right now. Yeah, and so, yeah, that, which is there, bullshit, there's this most popular erotic movie, horror movies and TV shows, which makes sense. And then Scene Three Sixty has ten great erotic horror movies, but yeah, it's a, it's a topic that I find inexhaustive for whatever reason. Sex and nudity and horror—they have always gone to get together like chocolate and peanut butter for me. And you could say that movies like like slasher movies are actually like weirdly like reactionary movies that kind of kill the sexual revolution because you're getting punished for your libidinous right. ways. And there is certainly credence to that to that read. But I really like the movies like Vampires, where these two girls they're vampires. They live. They basically they have this gimmick where they hitchhike. They pick up lonely men. They take them back to the mansion. They give them nice wine, stimulating conversation, culture, this like beautiful mansion. Like this, they, basically you give, they give them the night of their lives, then a menage a trois, and then they eat them for dinner, and then they go to bed, and they do the whole process over again. <laughs> but these guys live well for the last like, couple of hours <laughs> of their life, and that, that movie really pushes my buttons. Um, I think if that, you know, if or when that actually happens to you, I think basically when it's all over, you're sort of like, all right, now somebody's going to, now they're going to eat me. Yeah. <laughs> like you sort of just know. Absolutely. This- <laughs> and people are curious. It's vampires with a Y and the director is uh, sometimes listed as Jose Ramon Larraz and sometimes as Joseph Larraz. But yeah, it's 1974 vampires. It is special. But yeah, but for other Halloween movies, I would really recommend I mean, You always got to throw in one Italian horror and I'd probably throw in City of the Living Dead by Lucio Fulci. That one is really special to me. Um, like with American Horror. I mean, can't fuck with like something like a genuine classic like Night of the Living Dead. I mean, fifty one years later, it still really works. And of course, you'd have to throw in some Cronenberg. I mean, if you're gonna go pure yeah. Cronenbergian horror, I'd throw in probably either Shivers or The Brood or definitely early Cronenberg as opposed to Art House Cronenberg. Etc. But yeah, it's an inexhaustible topic. I mean, horror is just so much goddamn fun. And it's a, but another thing they brought up in the Pure Cinema podcast, which was interesting, is it's the only genre of filmmaking where people will ask you to kind of apologize for liking it. Like, well, mm. how do you justify it or how do you defend it? And it's like, fuck you. Like, I don't have to defend shit. I fucking love horror. And, but it is funny how it has like this stink on it. You never have to defend liking war films. You never, never have to defend liking romantic comedies. You never have right. to defend liking, you know, minimalist British dramas or something like that. But people will kind of accuse you of being depraved for liking horror movies. I mean, to be fair, though, I think before Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, 
Rings, I think people were definitely apologizing for Dungeons and Dragons. I think Lord of the Rings, that sort of ended it. And obviously now with Game of Thrones, um, RIP. Yeah. Fantasy's back. Yeah. yeah, like fantasy was embarrassing for a while and then too it wasn't. Butt, too many butt cheeks and spray on pants <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> I think horror has gone through a lot of that too. I think people, I mean, basically at this point, if you if you aren't Hollywood royalty and you want to make a movie that might potentially make money, you make a horror film. Fuck yeah. You know, you basically, everybody in the universe is trying to get Jason Blum to make their movie. Because or you that's look at like. A24. I mean, yeah. Who, two of their biggest superstars to emerge in recent years, Robert Eggers and Ari Aster, and they both did it with The Witch and Hereditary, two great horror yep. movies. Yep. But even for the art house tastemaker brand of A24, if you want to launch two young filmmakers, boom. And they're two of yeah. the most, uh, for me, artistically promising young filmmakers out there and that's how they got the, that's how they got their start and i mean you talk about representation i mean for women people of color that are trying to get into film like that is also like another venue where there are tons of opportunities yeah, for yeah, like that. yeah yeah obviously jennifer kent is a yeah. great example um annie little i'm in poor you know she made one of the like craziest mashup genre films ever uh, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and that movie I, I don't know if it was a huge success but you know she people know who she is just on and on and on so I think and also another thing if you do a good job people don't even care like who you are like I, for years I had no idea that the original um, Pet Cemetery film was directed by a woman yeah I, I had think no her name clue. is uh, Mary Heron I think is her name or what, what is her name no Mary Heron is the she one did that American did American Psycho, Psycho. yeah who, Hang on. Pet Cemetery was directed by Mary Lambert. But it's one of those things where if you do a good job, then it's like, who cares if you're a woman or black, white, straight, whatever? Yeah. Make a damn good movie. And guess what? You're going to get opportunities. So on but, and so forth. Then Mary Lambert delivered. I mean, Pet Cemetery for a lot of people like Marcus Penn, Zelda. You can't if you want to fuck with Marcus, go on Twitter, tag him, and post a picture of Zelda. You know, suffering from men- meningitis and screaming and being weird. But yeah, Marcus will he'll probably block you because he, <laughs> he gets up undone by that picture. Uh, yeah, no, I I mean it's just it's just however you look at it. You talk a lot, and you know, you and I share the same opinion on this. The way that film is going, and uh, we love our comic book movies. We love our big uh, franchise movies, obviously. But if we still want to see people make movies like The Joker or, or you know, R-rated movies that are risk-taking, that venue, a lot baby. of it, a lot of it is sell it as horror. Yeah. You know, whether but it's... The Lighthouse is not a horror movie, but there's a lot of horror in it. But it remains to be seen whether or not that'll match. The Witch is more overtly a horror movie. Yeah. I think Lighthouse opened in eight theaters or six theaters nationwide this past weekend. And as per theater average was like half of what like Parasite was. I don't know if the Lighthouse is going to replicate the runaway success mm. of The Witch because I feel like The Witch was just much more marketable. If I was a film student, like if I was a film professor and I had a bunch of like wannabe directors and producers in my class, the advice I would give them is if you want to if you want to break through and actually like do your own thing. Even if it's just for a little while before you know you sell it to Disney, if you want to do your own thing for a while, start with a horror film. You could probably teach a really good introductory film course by just showing debut features that happen mm. to be horror films, and it's like I'm going to line up 20 movies by different filmmakers from around the world, yeah. from every like, yep. walk of life, and you'll see that this is a great. It's just a great calling card, and it also just it puts you on the map and you make a little money. You, you appear to be bankable, etc. And yeah, it's hard to go wrong. But also, there's another. You mentioned female directors. There's one that I have not seen any of her movies that I heard about that I'm curious about and she made a movie called The Being 
Her name is Jackie Kong. Mm, no, I don't know who and that is. And she's got only a handful of movies, but Blood Diner, Night Patrol, and The Being are apparently all pretty goddamn cool. But she's oh, so a, this is like 80s. Yeah, 80s hard oh, director. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so I just, once again, I'm going, I keep uh, plugging Pierce Cinema Podcast. I promise they're not paying me to do so. But I was just <laughs> listening, and they brought, up the, they brought up The Being, and I was like, I've never fucking heard of The Being. And so I looked up, so Jackie Kong is a director that I'm planning on sinking my teeth into. I love it. And by the way, uh, going back to the 25th Frame Media um, a conglomerate, uh, Soar has his Just the Discs podcast on yep. our, obviously PCP is associated with New Beverly, but yep. um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's been pretty cool. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, like certainly listening to your podcast is probably the most important thing to that uh, convinced me to get involved uh, in podcasting because listening to your conversations, whether it's with Lizzie about the devils and Ken Russell or Marcus, you know, in uh, one of your best of uh, year end episodes or like whatever, just listening to talk about movies and have all these awesome conversations. I was like, dude, I need to get on, I need to get on wrong reel. And I was like, but first I need to start a podcast so I can, I can be ready yeah, well, to be at the big show. When I, you live in New York, so there's no excuses. We can record anytime you like. So I we'll, love we, it. But next time we'll, 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 we'll create a nice round table environment. We'll find a cool topic and we'll, we'll turn you loose with some of our New York pals. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and just I'm, remind people, what is your social media? Where can people find your show? Give them all the information yeah. they need to find you online. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, host of podcast, Film Baby Film, we have an episode where we talk about the big picture, um, a great book about the Sony hack and about the, it, I was going to say the current state of media, but really it's like, like two years two, ago. Yeah, the, it's, <laughs> it's, and the, the landscape's changing so rapidly that it might as well be like 10 years ago. I mean, things are changing so quickly, but it yeah. just means he needs to write another book. But yeah, so uh, you can check out that episode and a lot of other episodes that we discussed and more on Film Baby Film. Lots of people from Wrong Reel have come on and done episodes. Um, and we're part of the 25th Frame Media Group, so you can subscribe to the 25th Frame Media main feed so you can get all the episodes of just the discs and if you're a criterion fan the stuff for that and so you can you can check me out there also i'm mildly active on twitter um at film baby film and letterboxd uh at jonathan james so if you want to come and come and chat with me i'd be pleased so that's my that's my first name and my middle name okay gotcha and uh yeah so i i put that out there for my facebook actually is jonathan james because at one time i had a girlfriend or an ex-girlfriend or whatever she was that I did not want her to be able to see my face. She went full Sarah on you. <laughs> so, so that's why that happened. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'm sorry it took us like fucking forever to finally record an episode in the flesh, but now that we've done it, let's, let's do it more frequently. But Absolutely. we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. You can find us Twitter, Facebook, all the usual places. And if you want some video content, Geeking with James Hancock just reviewed The Lighthouse. I've reviewed actually like six movies in the last week. I've been reviewing a shitload of movies lately, so definitely help me down there. And if you want some Wrong Real gear, there is a link in the show notes for Wrong Real coffee mugs, Wrong Real t-shirts, all that good stuff. But hope everyone has an amazing Halloween. Plan your own horror, night, horror movie marathon and and give us a shout on Twitter and let us know uh, what you picked. And yeah, I strongly recommend Vampires. If you're looking to get in that special Desert Island mood between now and Halloween, that would be at the top of the list. But can't thank you for listening. Greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>